Welcome, everyone. I'm so excited about today's episode. I have a lovely Julia Malott, and I hope I got that right, with you a did. lot of a lot of thoughts. <laughs> I love your tag um, as well. And I'm super excited to have uh, an opportunity to talk to you because, like I said just earlier, and even when we first connected, is I don't know a lot about this subject, but wow, do people have opinions? And I'm not one to jump into something without having a little bit of knowledge first or firsthand personal experience. And I thought, who else better than to talk to than Julia herself, who you've really put yourself out there. And I certainly appreciate it. Um, so I'd like to hear your story. And maybe if we could just start with who you are. Um, I, I didn't want to name or label you in any way. That was incorrect. So I'm going to let you take it from here. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Um, how far back do you want me to go? Do you want me to talk about my whole transition story? Do you want me to talk about really the last few years and how I became more of a public voice on it? Or do we want to do both? No, definitely both. So a little bit about like, yeah, you're, I, as much as I know is you're um, in Ontario. So oh, just okay. a well, bit that's of background true. as well. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So yes, I live in Ontario in Canada. Um, I'm in Toronto and I've been in this area my whole life. I grew up in a small farming town about two hours from Toronto. Um, no diversity, the same 30 mm. kids were the, the kids I went to school with kind of all the way from kindergarten up until grade eight when I went to a slightly bigger high school, but still quite small. And um, I also had a very strong religious upbringing. So my family has attended evangelical churches pretty much my whole life. Uh, I think we started in the United Church, and then by the time I was five, we moved to an evangelical one. And along with that, I have always held gender dysphoria. And I like to qualify that when I say always, because I know that when you're really young, like you don't know what that is. And so it's, mm -hmm. I, I don't want to lie or make it sound like I somehow knew that when I was young, but everyone knew my life wasn't working. I saw four different counselors before I was in grade six because mm -hmm. Jason didn't have any friends. I was Jason, by the way, at that point, and Jason didn't have any friends and Jason didn't get along with the boys. And I had these severe anxiety issues where I would like put my hands on my face and I wouldn't even pull them away because I was just so anxious and miserable. And it all started when school started. My mom would say I was the happiest kid, you know, when I was three and four and friendly and outgoing and then school happened and I just closed right up. And I, 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 over time, I started to understand in myself what was going on in terms of understanding that I didn't feel like the boys. I didn't understand how to get along with the boys. And there was this expectation that, that I should be, that I should be playing the sports, that I should be in those social circles. And the, the counselors I had were not particularly helpful because this was the 90s. And so I think now people would have very quickly zeroed in on there might be a, a gender thing or a sexuality thing or something going on. But at that point in time, nobody was thinking about that, at least not the counselors I had, and they were all religious counselors as well. So that might have also been part of it. But when I was in grade seven, that was kind of the moment for me that it really started to reach a point that I was getting a verbal awareness of how I was feeling. So I had this friend, um, and I was talking with him on the playground once in grade seven. And I remember making this comment saying something like, you know, but everyone just thinks the grass is greener on the other side, right? Like all boys kind of wish they were girls sometimes and all girls kind of wish they were boys. And he just kind of looked at me. He's like, no, I don't, I don't think so. I don't think most people feel that way. And I was like, yeah, me neither. And then I went home that night. And I was like, okay, like that was kind of the clicking moment of maybe I'm feeling something different. Maybe this isn't how everybody just feels. Mm -hmm. And this was early 2000s. So there was nothing in our education system about it. There was nothing online about it really from a kind of professional 
institutional sense, but there were these blogs that these various people would put on about being transgender. And it was usually called transsexual back then, but it was the, the same topic. So I started to come across these blogs. And when I was reading them, I thought like this echoes my feelings exactly. And it was a very different era than today, of course. At this point in time, there's, there's no legalization, there's extreme marginalization of anybody who's transgender. So these are not people who are you know, doing it for an identity purpose or an attention purpose. These are people who are desperate, who have kind of landed on this because nothing else was working. And so as I read their stories and hear what they said, I thought, wow, this really does reflect how I've always felt. Mm -hmm. And so that gave me, gave me some positioning. I thought, wow, I, I, I understand what I'm feeling. I know what's going on. And I have no idea what to do with it because I'm in this deeply religious household. And this was right around the time that gay marriage, of course, was a hot issue in, in Canada. And it was a hot issue in my church. And so we have these speakers coming in talking to us about how bad this is that, you know, Canada might create an environment where people are legally allowed to be gay and how sinful and horrible that is. And as this kid who's just moving into adolescence, I was thinking, wow, like if, if being gay is so bad and so sinful and so disgusting then I don't even know what I am, but I'm, I'm several steps further than that. No one's even talking about that. It's, and I, I, I assume people didn't even know about it because I had never heard the word transgender. It wasn't mentioned anywhere. I only found it online. So my, my way of coping with this was to internalize it all. And I internalized it and I didn't talk about it. And I held a lot of shame around kind of the, I'd say my identity, but Saying my identity is maybe a false way to put it because I hadn't adopted that identity. I was Jason. I was a boy, but around how I felt about gender, around my discomfort. And I, I really shared it with almost nobody for the next 20 years. I told my girlfriend in, when I was 18 and I eventually married her. So four years later at 22, we got married. Um, and, and you're smiling so there, but knew. it, she what knew. was that? She, she knew, knew. Yeah. Yeah. She knew, but we both didn't know what to do with it. She went to my yeah. church too. And I, I told her about it and I'm like, but I'm not going to transition and, and stuff. I guess I should back up too. So a few years earlier, I, I was a very rational kid. So I remember thinking like, if I want to pass, if I want to pass and be able to go through this world and have nobody know, I needed to transition at, you know, 14 at the latest. So at like 12, 13 years old, I'm thinking I could do this but I'd have to run away from home and I'd have to pay for all these things. So I had the spreadsheet going of all the costs and I was like, Oh, like toilet paper, these things, these, they add up really fast. And how am I going to do this? And, and it's funny looking back because I didn't even contemplate telling my parents in my head. It was like, well, I can't do that. So the only option here is I run away and I do it or right. I don't transition. Yeah. And the, the pragmatic side of me was like, well, I guess I don't transition. This isn't the path I can take. So I didn't. And then I, I dove really deep into my faith kind of as a, compensatory measure and moved to the point of suppression. So, so I tell my, my girlfriend at 18, we don't do anything about it. We just kind of suppress it. Over the next maybe 10 years, I told maybe two or three people. I, I told a psychologist once that when I was in university in the counseling department and I, I, I told a friend, I think when I was 23, 24, but really I, I didn't talk about it, but it was very much present in my life and everything. And it, I was miserable. It was, I guess, the, the, the simplest way to put it. Um, I was a bad husband. I was a bad friend. And I was miserable because I had chosen not to pursue what I knew was going to relieve what, what I was feeling. Um, that went on until I was 28. And at 28, everything kind of crashed. My marriage crashed, um, which was very much my doing. Um, my, my social circles crashed. And I, and I hit this point where I realized that 
I was going to kill myself where I was going to transition. So I, I didn't end up in the hospital um, at the suicide ward, which was, which was fantastic. Not at the time, but it was fantastic looking back because that was the moment that I started to get psychiatric help and really look at this and talk about this and think about this. And that ultimately led me down the, the path of transition that I find myself on today. And I did it almost begrudgingly in a way. It was kind of, well, the, nothing else is working, so I might as well try this. And if it, if it works, then great. And if not, I can kill myself later. As I said, very rational, you know, <laughs> in a certain way. Um, but what I didn't realize at the time, and I was able to kind of grasp later on, was that I had two things going on. I had this gender dysphoria that I, I had and still have. I also had this shame bubble that I'd created because I was suppressing it, because I wasn't sharing it, because I was hiding it, and because I was inauthentic with everybody in my life, <laughs> my, my parents, my siblings, and all of my friends. And the process of transitioning broke down both of those. Sure, it alleviated the dysphoria, but it also dealt with my shame because all of a sudden, as a, as a non-passing trans person, you present yourself to the world in a way that everybody knows something very personal about me the moment I walk into a room. And that can be a curse, but it can also be a blessing because mm -hmm. I can't hide from it. it. It kind of forced me into a place of having to be authentic, which seeing the power in that authenticity now, like I would never go back because that's enabled me to have these much more authentic relationships and be much more authentic about myself. And, mm -hmm. and it's funny because in this transgender domain, people so often use the word authentic to be equated with true self. You know, like you are the gender you feel. I don't mean it like that. I just mean authentic as in, I have this deeply uncomfortable relationship with gender and everybody knows it. Everybody in my life knows it. And that's empowering to me that I can't hide behind it. I can't put on a presentation of being all put together. It's, everybody knows that. And I, I leaned into it over time. So, so that was my, my transition. Um, any, any comments you want to make before I go into the next phase? So many, so many. <laughs> things I was taking notes because there's a lot like I said I really don't know a lot about this subject at all and so there's a lot of terms you used and and I not just the terms but I want to get a better understanding so you started with I think you said like you you've ha had gender dysphoria all your life basically yes. I think that's a, and so what is gender dysphoria yeah so gender dysphoria is how we used to bracket transgender matters and I'm sure later in the conversation we'll talk to why I say used to rather than continue to but <laughs> It is this deep psychological distress with your birth sex. So I'm biologically male. I know that. We all know that. And that really did not work for me. And there's a lot of you know, research and a lot of opinions on why that is and what that means, the extent to which that's biologically rooted, the extent to which it's psychosocial. But what it, what it means at its core is that I have a strong conviction that that doesn't work. I don't know how to go through the world like that with the expectations and the sociological norms that are placed upon maleness. And that I'd like to get into that a little bit more because you said that that's something you struggled with, like trying to fit into the male um, uh, mold, I guess. So what were some of the things that were like, you mentioned the one thing when you verbalized it, but what were other thoughts and feelings and concerns that you had that you're like, this doesn't really sit with me? Um, yeah, male gender. Yeah, no, it's it's an interesting question, and it's it's funny. I find myself in this this conversation a lot right now with where our politics sit, because I think a lot of people believe that we're at this place where we are empowered to do whatever we want, right? We've broken down these stereotypes, and girls can do anything, and boys can do anything, and I I, I don't believe that's true. I don't know how I don't know how you feel, but I I certainly feel like there are I'm still 
Yeah. Yeah. There's mm-hmm. some plenty of expectations there. And there was an amazing book by uh, Richard Reeves that came out last year. It's called Of Boys and Men. And he talks about a lot of the reasons why men are struggling in society right now. The, the conversation that isn't, isn't happening, especially on the progressive side, because they're the oppressor. So we're not supposed to, we're not supposed to, <laughs> to credit them for anything they could be struggling with. But he talks about how the last 80 years have brought about an era where we have broken down some of the stereotypes and some of the bracketing of what women can do in society. I say some, because certainly there's still lots that exist, but we've enabled, you know, career expansion. We've enabled participation in lots of domains that didn't exist before, but we haven't actually done the same thing on, on the male side. The example that I like to use kind of very clearly is clothing. You know, it's, it's a very tangible one we can all see of there's pretty much no clothing that a woman cannot wear, right? You, if you like baggy tomboy clothing, if you like jeans and a sweater, you can wear that. And that's fine. That's not just it, like, it's not just that you're allowed to, it's acceptable. There is stuff that's shaped to the women's body that works. No one judges you for that. When you're a man, you have very strict, you know, you wear pants, <laughs> you wear shorts, but not to work. You wear t-shirts, you wear, you know, polo shirts, you wear yeah. button-up shirts, and that's it. You know, like when I transitioned, just learning like what the difference was between a cardigan and a blouse and all these different categories, because there's so many. And it's like, and then people will say, well, men can wear those things. And it's like, yes, you're right. Legally speaking, a man can wear a dress. And we all know how that gets received. And when Harry Styles pulls it off, it's accepted because he's Harry Styles. He's a celebrity and he can make Mm -hmm. a statement. But when an average man walks down the street, we know the things people say. We know the way people react to that. And those are the kind of sociological limitations that I I experienced as a kid. Not that I was obsessed with dresses, let's say. But, you know, the boys play like this. The boys do these things. The boys like the superheroes. The boys like the foot hockey. That was a big thing in my school. And it didn't click with you ever. Exactly. It never clicked. Because what did I want to do? I wanted to sit in the circle over there and play the hand games, you know, and like, and just talk. Like, what do I do with my friends now? We get together and we talk for hours and hours and hours. And that's how I know how to socialize. And Mm -hmm. the the environment I grew up in, which was a small conservative farming town, so that might have played into part of it. But the environment I grew up in was very much, there wasn't a place for that. Mm-hmm. That, you know, boys are supposed to do these things. And, and that was the approach that was taken with me too. And I wasn't finding those social connections. What did the counselor say? Well, buy Jason a basketball net. If Jason can get better at basketball, then maybe he'll get along with the boys. So when I was struggling, well, go and practice basketball. And I hated basketball. I wanted to play with my sister's Polly Pockets, but I'd be sent outside to, to play basketball and shoot hoops, which I still can't do, even though I had a basketball net my entire childhood. Yeah. It's so interesting you're saying that because like to to suggest that females and males could be the same is it's it just so wrong because we know psychologically we're so different. And it's interesting your experience because I actually read one um, account of a female transitioning in uh, to a male. And she said that uh, I think it was in What is the Woman, but more information about people on that um, something else I saw but she had never experienced so much isolation as a man she said that she would have in the bathroom and as girls we all know you'll go to the bathroom in a girl uh, in a group and we're often made fun of and what happens we end up chatting and talking about it and she said she had more like intimate conversations with strangers in the bathroom as a woman than males Uh, when she transitioned she just became so 
isolated. And going back like history is what was women's job when it was like um, hunter gathering. We were social and picking um, berries with the babies. So we were talking loud so that the bears wouldn't come. Whereas the males were opposite. They were quiet. They were individual because they were hunting the bears. So they were trying not to get it. So like, you know, this stuff is innate in us. And to suggest that all of that is gone completely is just not reality really and i'm like you i'm so practical so I, like it's hard for me not to like think through all of the scenarios um and it's funny you mentioned the clothes because that's something we commented on um i had just seen your post about drag shows and drag queens and like i'm all for it i've been to them they're fun but number one you're supposed to be 18 everyone i've been to they've been at the bar and then the second thing is i never really thought about it because you mentioned it and i'd like to talk about it since we were talking about clothes but like the way the clothing is and here i've put on like extra makeup on purpose too <laughs> because it's so exaggerated too. And that's not even I feel a little bit clownish today, honestly, um, because I don't put this much on. But like when a man is dressing up as a woman in the drag shows, it's big. It's just it's not even female. It's not it's not reality again, which is what they're trying to do. So I don't know if you had some other thoughts about it because we kind of exchanged comments online. Yeah, no, it's I think you've nailed it. And something that someone said to me once that I thought was really poignant on this was what would happen if a woman did that, right? You know, like if some, if a woman were to dress like that and go to the school and read the book, would we still celebrate it? If that was how my classroom teacher dressed every day for her kids, would I celebrate that? Or would I be like, I don't know how I feel about that. And quite honestly, I know the answer because Halton District School Board is not far from me. And they had that issue with that transgender teacher yeah. in 2022. And I was, I was a voice who was participating in the delegations with the parent group there. And we saw how people, you know, respond to that dress and if it was somebody who was biologically female doing that we, we'd respond that way as well and yet the moment we call it drag we we treat it differently in a way that i i don't think it's helpful and i don't yeah. understand why yeah neither and so i'm glad we're having this conversation because i think as practical people we have to just at least talk about it and comment about it and if there is a reason why sure let's talk about it but if there isn't and we're just assuming things this is going to help someone when it, in fact looking at hearing your story it seems like it harms people more or at least doesn't benefit the conversation so um you all there's a couple of things you mentioned too like you said extreme marginalization and I just wrote those words down but I didn't even get the context about it um so maybe if you could tell me I think you were talking about how transgenderism is now or how people feel and you use the words extreme marginalization. So tell me more about that. Or was, was that, that, was that on that same post you thinking of? No, no, just earlier in our conversation. Oh, okay. Yeah. You, well, yeah, I think you were saying it like as things have changed because before it was like a conversation about gender dysphoria and then it's become extreme, extremely marginal. Yeah. Well, and so I just would like to understand that a bit better. I think that's a great segue into kind of the second piece of my story. Okay. So <laughs> I, I ended up transitioning. I've had a social, a hormonal and a surgical transition. So I've done the full gamut. Um, I am remarried. I have an adopted daughter now. Um, and my adopted daughter is actually my partner's little sister. Um, there was some physical and emotional um, abuse in the family and in the household. And that ultimately led to 
uh, me taking her on uh, during the beginning of COVID. So about three years ago, um, my, my partner's chronically ill. So she was unable to be the primary caregiver. And I was at a point in my life that I was, I was ready to have somebody to care for. So I took her on and she came and lived with me, which meant that she was moving from a much smaller rural high school to go to a big city high school. And so she started there for her grade 10 year. And I was really scared because I was thinking of how things were when I was in school 20 years ago. And I wouldn't have been comfortable with someone who had a transgender parent. I probably would have judged them. And I thought, is this going to be a barrier for my daughter to be able to fit in and have connections that, that I'm transgender? And is it going to become a riff in our relationship? Will she resent me? And as it turned out, I couldn't have been further from the truth because things have changed a lot in the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. And at first it felt awesome because I was cool. You know, the kids are like, that's awesome. You know, like your, your parents transgender and stuff. And I thought, wow, like this is so great. And I think that lasted for about three weeks until I realized like, no, actually this is not great because I shouldn't be, I don't need to be celebrated. I am, it's great that I'm not, as you said, marginalized, you know, I'm not pushed to the edge of society as though I don't matter and I should be ignored because we don't know what to do with Julia. But I also don't need to be celebrated because I'm just a normal person trying to live a normal life, right? I'm not special in that sense. I just happen to be transgender. And I realized very quickly how fixated we are in the school system right now on these transgender matters, how cool it is in a certain sense, because it has become a form of identity. For me, it has, it has never been a form of identity. It's just a reality. And mm-hmm. I think that's a very healthy way to interact with this. There's a there's a politician, a Canadian politician who I know who is gay. And when I was talking to her once, she, she described the same thing. She described herself as um, heteronormative, even though she is a lesbian. But she's like, you know, I'm not, it, it's, it's a fact about me and people know it, but it's not something I talk about much. It's not something that's particularly important. And she's like, and I feel very disconnected from the LGBT world and all of that because it's not my life. Mm-hmm. And what I observed watching my daughter's school was that there's a huge wave of, children and young adults who have made transgender matters an identity in the sense that they are focused on it, their social circle revolves around it, that everything is fixated on being part of this group. And I don't think that's a good thing. And and that kind of comes down to the shift in our narrative of how we are viewing these matters. Classically speaking, we would view transgender matters through that lens of gender dysphoria. It was it's described in a great book by uh, by an individual named Mark Yarhouse as the disability framework where there's something wrong with me you know i am biologically male and that didn't work and since we live in a prosperous and caring society we can allow me to thrive there's things we can do to support me so that i can have a good life and i can contribute to our society and i think that's great it's not any different than someone who's in a wheelchair and we can build elevators we can build ramps so we should and we do and that allows them to thrive but we don't say that there's nothing wrong with their legs. We don't change the narrative to say some people have legs and some people have non-working legs and that's all you know, phenotypically normal. We say, no, like their legs are not working and we can accommodate that. I view myself in that lens and that's how we used to view transgender matters. In the last 10 to 15 years, the, the deconstructive approach to gender has come in and kind of reframed that conversation to be focused on diversity, on finding your your true self, your, your, your individuality, your creativity in it. You know, I, I don't think it's a mistake that it's come along in the same era where the names that we give our children has exploded. I've always been obsessed with baby names. I love to go to the U.S. Social Security's database because they give it all to you. And you can just plug the data and see how names have changed over time. And we've all seen that trend that the classic names have gone away. 
And it's, it seems like so many people want to pick new creative different names. So they take a name and they find a new creative different way to spell it. And, and that's not helpful. Like, you know, names are spelt so that we can communicate. And when you take Catherine and you decide to add a silent GHT in the middle, like you haven't done your child a service. And yet every year there's more people who are doing that because we seem to have this obsession with finding a way to be different and to express yourself and all of these these trends in our society and LGBT matters and, and you know transgender matters and gender itself has very much become part of this mix. Mm-hmm. And that's not a bad thing in and of itself. Um, I'm friends with uh, an author named Lisa Sullen Davis, and she wrote a book called Tomboy about five years ago, where she kind of looks at tomboys from the very beginning of, I say time, like 100 years ago, up till today, and kind of the trends we've gone through. And, you know, that's a form of gender nonconformity, right? Those are, those are girls who pushed back in the 70s against the stereotypical femininity and said, no, I can be like this. And that's great. And that's healthy. And I think that that is wonderful. However, that gender nonconformity now has been blended and morphed into a world of social and medical transition, which is, which is very different. In other words, if you are looking for identity as a 15-year-old and you want to call yourself demisexual, or you want to wear this and do it, experiment, that's fine. That's not damaging. But when, when we move into gender, when we move into the way those conversations are being had, that can and that does lead to social, medical, and hormonal transitions, which for those gender dysphoric people like myself, that has always been a powerful tool. I'm an advocate, and I think it's important we protect it. But that's not very many kids. When I was a kid, they estimated that to be one in 5,000. And that was probably an underestimate because it wasn't talked about very much. But my school board last year said 39% of their kids identify as LGBT. And what? <laughs> because they're all bi, because they're this, because, you know, because it's cool, right? Because I know, I know they're kids. And when it's at 39%, I'm like, okay, I also don't think that is. Mm-hmm. it's helpful and it's not even it can't even be real it can't because and this is what I was just chatting about a little bit earlier is how much we have changed like any adult knows that when you're at 15 or 7 or 21 or 25 or 30 you have a very different view of the world and of your identity and I said this earlier is I don't like any labels honestly like I don't at all even enjoy people saying you're a lawyer because that's already a label on me (laughs) and it's like it's an identity to some people so they identify me as a lawyer but I'm not I'm Eva and I've always been that way and so that's why this conversation and this identity thing is just so strange to me and to suggest that 39 people are this way like I'm like I'm Eva just Eva Please, Eva. And it's funny, you just just with the names, I want to add this one part is that I, I very much agree with you about how much names affect. And when you're a child in school, my name was spelt EWA when I was going through um, school. And I would that's the Polish way. There is no um, V in the Polish language. So the, okay. the W is like a, a V. And I was very shy. My parents were a bit older and I very disciplined, very nice young girl. And they would always say, Iwa, something. And I'd be like, that's me. I would never correct them. 
And and I think that that affected me. That affects you as you're growing up when you're just trying to discover who you are, because like you've been saying, identity is just so important. Something like a name. Kids are already struggling with that. And then to add this incredibly complicated thing um, like sex and um, gender is just mind-boggling to me so sorry to take it away from you no, for a second. no I think that's completely on point and and I, I understand why they did it because they look at the era that I grew up in and they're like wow we we really didn't serve a lot of gender just for our kids like like Jason well we should fix that but mm-hmm. th- their approach to doing so has been to you know overcompensate to now talk about it all the time with all the kids all over the place and I, I it would make me laugh if it wasn't so sad because mm-hmm. we don't need to do that. Like I was severely gender dysphoric for counselors before the age of grade six. Like if, if any counselors were trained in this back then, they would have been like, I wonder. And if they'd ever asked me, do you wish you're a girl? I would have been like, yes, I do. Like I, I, I knew it. I just how wasn't saying it. Though? So how would have that changed for you? Do you think like looking back, if you had that conversation, they had that conversation with you. How would or that have would, changed? Yeah. Or would it I mean, not? It's it's a tough question because the culture was a very different place back then, right? Mm-hmm. You know, we we transition wasn't readily available, certainly wasn't funded, um, and it was marginalized, right? It was it was judged much more. It's still judged today, but it was judged much more harshly than it is now. Mm-hmm. Um, given that, with my religious roots as well, like I, I don't think that would have been available to me, even if you know a counselor or someone had brought it up with my parents when I was ten years old or twelve years old or at any of those points, but. Today, we could be having that world. You know, lots of people will ask me, what do I wish the schools were doing today? Yes. And my answer to that is, cut out most of what we're teaching about LGBT matters and keep the pieces that teach acceptance. I always use the analogy to religion. We have a school system that I believe is broadly successful when it comes to protecting religious diversity, but not advocating for it. Right. You know, we do not want an education system that teaches your kid that they should be Christian or they should be Muslim. But we do want an education system that protects Christian and Muslim kids from being marginalized or bullied or anything else for their religious upbringing and for their beliefs. We could do the same thing here. We can teach those young kids. Yes, some people have two mums. We respect that. Okay, moving on. Right. We don't have to celebrate it, but we can say, yeah, that, that's going to happen. Yeah, this, this kid here, you know, is now Jennifer. Okay, moving on, right? We don't have to celebrate, yeah. but we can just be like, this is what's happening. They're kids. They don't care. <laughs> they'll, do, they'll do what we say. Um, but instead, what has happened is almost this obsession with wanting to find the kids like me really early. So y- you see these, these cases that come up in, in Ontario again and again, where kindergarten or grade one or grade two students are being asked, like, what gender are you? Are you sure? Could you be this? And it's like, we don't need to ask them that. They, they will tell you if they're truly dysphoric, like... But that's that diversity piece that we've moved into the space where since it's diversity for the sake of diversity, well, why not let them find their true selves? It's, it's like what color you paint your picture in kindergarten. Well, use all the paints, make it whatever you want, Timmy. It'll be beautiful no matter what you do. And we're, we're treating it the same way. And, and that's where I, I don't think we're doing our kids a service. So um, clearly, I know you're an advocate in this area of, in some regard. Are you, are people, school boards seeking you out or elected officials or are you going to them and are they receptive? Like what's going on with that whole conversation and discussion? Right. It's a, it is a very politically charged matter right now. So <laughs> I, 
school boards, broadly speaking, are amongst our most progressive left organizations right now. That's a trend that you know, there's, there's several reasons for it. Um, one of them is just the union pressure that has played upon them for the last 50 years. But broadly speaking, the directors of education in most school boards tend to be very progressive left-leaning. And the unions have done a great job of getting trustees in place who tend to be very progressive left-leaning, usually more left than the, um, the local population overall. So the boards themselves don't tend to want someone like me to come and speak because I'm not saying the right things. I'm not taking that postmodernistic deconstructive approach to saying it's all about diversity, find your true self, explore, you know, that, that sort of attitude. I'm saying, no, men and women do exist and we should let that happen. You know, that's kind of my basic tenet of approaching this is if there's a kid we could transition or they could be happy not transitioned, we should take the second path. We should not transition that kid, right? You know, it's, it's something we do when they're desperate, just like if there's a kid who could walk or we could put them in a wheelchair, we're going to let them walk. And that isn't actually a popular opinion right now in, in, that, in the school sector. The sector is no, let people explore, let people find it. So the boards don't tend to be a huge fan, but there are individual trustees who certainly rely upon me because they are concerned. They, they tend to come from the classical liberal perspective. They're very concerned with the way that they're seeing discourse being shut down, seeing that parents can't express concerns with books or concerns with any of these matters. And so I have, I have school board connections across the country of trustees that I've helped to support. I have counselors in local government across the country who I've helped to support. And then at both the provincial and the federal level, the, the conservative side of our parties has tend to lean into me. And there's, there's a number of politicians who I do work with and consult with to support them and to mm -hmm. kind of, you know, discuss some of these matters. But yeah, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting discussion we have right now with the division. Well, and like, that's why I was so happy to talk to you because who, who better to talk to than somebody that's <laughs> lived the experience rather than just somebody that's coming up with their own thoughts or their own pers uh, perspective on it. So that's why I thought I was wondering whether or how much um, consultation or how many people are reaching out to you to hear, because isn't that the whole point of diversity and inclusion? So I don't get those words when we're, we're excluding people all the time. <laughs> I know, um, I know. Diversity, equity and inclusion. I, I laugh because it sounds great. It sounds like something yeah. we should all want. And I do want it. I want diversity. I want equity and I want inclusion. I just don't want what that has come to mean in our modern discussion of it. Yes. Because <laughs> it's meant yeah. shutting down anything that isn't a very specific perspective on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yeah, I have so many questions I want to ask you, but I try <laughs> to keep these kind of limited because then people are like, three hours is too long. And you <laughs> could always do it again, which I would love to. But um, can I, I want, I'd like to know a little bit more about practically how the transition was and if, because, so there's two questions I still want to talk about uh, and the second one will come back, but, you know, this is a very serious thing. And I think that's something that kind of gets glossed over to change from a man to a woman or a woman to man. It's like, we could just make it happen because that's how everything is just so easy in our society these days. You don't have to hunt for food, it's there. And I mm -hmm. feel like that's part of what's happened with this. Oh, you wanna be a man? Sure, no problem. We could get you that uh, special order number two. And I feel that that's a little bit because of our culture. So can you like, you did it at about 28, I think I got the time right? Or yeah, 28 years old and started in, what was it, 2018? So how was that? And then what I'd like to hear too is, does it make sense to you that 
at the age of 28, it made more sense. And I, like, I don't want to ask or, or I don't want you to think back in time, but just for kids in the future, like maybe does it make sense? Let's try this at 14 and see where it goes. Or does it make sense? Let's maybe wait until we're a bit more adult. So kind of your perspective on that, what, what your thoughts are. It's, it's something I'm working on a book on <laughs> because okay. it's such a complex topic of yeah. the childhood social transition. The, and I see very few people who really want to have an authentic conversation. They, they have an agenda. They're either there to protect it or they're there to fight against it. And so they're, they're not really willing to look at both sides. They're, they're just arguing it from one or the other. The, the thing that I think we have to keep in mind is why would a kid want to transition? And what I mean by that is kids want lots of things. You know, my, my daughter's been talking about wanting a tattoo for a few years and she doesn't have one yet. And she's 17. She might get one this year. I'm, I'm, I'm coming around to the idea of a small one, maybe in certain places, but I've always said, you might regret this. What if you get the lyrics to that song all over your arm? And then you realize that you don't love that musician when you're 24 and now you're stuck with yeah. it. And so I'm, I'm protecting her from that in a sense, but I believe yeah. that's a good thing because there's no real loss to waiting. The only loss she didn't get to be the cool kid with the lyrics to her favorite song in her arm when she was 12. And that's it, right? And I think a lot of people kind of compare that to these gender transitions and say, just wait. Just wait till you're 18 or you're 20 or you're 22 or you're 25 or whatever age we believe is acceptable. And if you still feel this way at that point, then you can transition and we'll, we'll support that. And I like the sound of it. And I wish we lived in a world where that was practical. But what mm -hmm. gets missed is you've gone through puberty. Yes, you missed out on your high school experiences, the other, you know, gender and those sorts of things, which, which is a loss. Like, I do feel that. But the, the much more important thing is you won't pass. And by pass, what I mean is being able to disappear into society by convincingly appear as a member of the opposite sex. If you don't go through a puberty that's aligned with your biological sex, and whether that's because you're on blockers or whether that's because you start cross-sex hormones really young, then broadly speaking... You know, phenotypically, you go into the sex, the, the um, sexual development of the other, the other sex, right? So boys like myself, if I had started on estrogen when I was 10 or 12, or if I'd been on blockers and started when I was 14 or 15, you wouldn't know. You wouldn't be able to tell now, right? Because my voice wouldn't be lower, because my jawline wouldn't be so broad, because my, my eyes here, you know, I have these deep row lines. So those wouldn't have developed the way that they did if mm -hmm. I had had that. And, and kids know this, right? And so kids are thinking, I feel this this pain and anxiety because I don't fit in society where I feel that I would like to be, where I belong, where with what might make sense to me. And in order to get that, I need to do this now. That was what I felt at that age. I need to do this now, not at 25, I can do it because you can do it, but it's a very different experience when you don't pass. And so where I think this conversation needs to go is recognizing that, that passability doesn't have to be everything but we make it everything, you know, we, we, because we live in a very sexualized society, because if you look at the conversations we're having right now, there's a reason why they're mostly focused around transgender women. And that's because transgender women are the ones who tend not to pass. Physiologically speaking, the changes that testosterone brings about in your body, like a lower voice or like those, you know, kind of angular, more masculine developments, those are not reversible. Versus when you look at someone who's biologically female, who goes on to testosterone later, they'll grow facial hair, their voice will lower. Most, broadly speaking, they'll pass. They'll be shorter, typically. They might have wider hips. So there can be some signs, but for the most part, a 20 or 24-year-old female who decides they want to transition will be able to pass 
to the point that when their clothes are on, you know, when we're not looking at genitals, when they're at the supermarket, when they want to go to the washroom, when they're wherever they need to be, no one's going to know. So even if people aren't okay with the idea of a biological female doing those male things, they're not going to know that they're doing it. Mm-hmm. But someone like myself, you know, if, if I go into that washroom or if I want to be in that sports team or any of the controversial matters that we hear people talking about, mm-hmm. people are going to know. So whether I'm a threat or not, or whether I'm whatever, people very clearly know I'm biologically male. They know that I've undergone a transition and that makes me the center of conversation. Well, it's understandable why our kids don't want to be the subject of those political conversations. And that drives the desperation. So in, in my mind, you know, to, to resolve this, there's lots of things we can do, but we have to holistically understand all of that complexity and not just say, well, they should wait, or, well, we must let kids be their true selves, because it's, there's more to the conversation than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really great points. And I think we could talk about that a lot longer. I, there's one more thing, one more topic that I, I do want to talk about on this, the more public one, is... Um, so, and you talked about this in your National Post article, and you touched on it in this conversation. What I'm trying to understand, because the big argument is, is that parents won't understand or they'll shame or whatever the parents, uh, the kids, but the teacher is the most more appropriate person <laughs> to be having that conversation with. So what are your thoughts about that whole discussion and yeah. who's the best person? And I'm sure it probably goes to your last response. It's the holistic and it depends. So I'll let you try. Well, it's, that, is, that is the hot topic conversation right now, right? Is the childhood social transitions. So just to, just to stand that one up, we're not talking about medical. We're not talking about hormonal or surgical at this point. We're just saying social transition, which means names and pronouns. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Jason is at school and Jason says, I want to be Julia. And the teacher yeah. says, okay, you're now Julia. I'll call you she, her, and goes up to the class and says, Jason is Julia. Okay, not a big deal on the surface. And that's the argument that gets used is, this is not a big deal. Nothing is permanent. It could be reversed. Who cares, right? You know, they're kids. Sometimes they say, today, I am a pilot. And they're, they're pretending that they're an airplane and going around the kids. And we let, we let kids do that, right? We don't have to get all upset about it and all worked out, up about it. But then you look at the conversation, the way it's happening, and it's, it's inconsistent. Because they, they tell us this isn't a big deal. And then a parent says, well, that's fine, but I would like to know because it's my kid. And I guess I'd like to know that my kid might be struggling with something. And then we say, well, we can't tell you because you might not affirm. You might, you might harm the kid. You might, you might be dangerous to the kid if you don't support them in this. And it's like, so it's not a big deal, but it's a really big deal at the same time is, is kind of where, where we're framing this conversation. And, and just this, so that, because I, I, this is where the disconnect I don't understand is if the parent has never been a threat to the kid before. Why all of a sudden do they think, okay, now the kid's going to be shamed and kicked out and beaten? I was like, how did we get from, okay, this is a good parent. Like, I get it maybe if there's been issues with the parent and the the child and their social welfare or something. But is there any rational discussion behind that? Or is that just well, zero to hundred? That's, that's where I believe the conversation is disingenuous. Um mm-hmm. I, I delegate on this topic and school boards across the country. I've written, as you mentioned at length, about it with the National Post. And it's the same arguments that come up again and again. And that one particular argument, well, harmful families, well, harmful parents, they exist. Yes, they do exist. They've always existed. Yeah. And first of all, we have CAS, Children's Aid Services, who's there to deal with those situations. And I know something about that due to my family's situation. And we've worked with them. And they're they're great. And if you look at modern CAS, they're 
they don't even lean on removing the kid from the household. They lean on supporting the household. Their, their hope is to take the household and strengthen it, say, abusive parents are abusive because there's problems, right? Because they're struggling. How can we help them? How can we help them help their kids rather than how can we rip a family apart? And so we have this system that can, that can do that and can support that. But like you mentioned too, this also just doesn't come you know, out of nowhere. If a parent is predisposed to abuse, if a parent is the kind of parent who might abuse their kid when they want to transition, is that truly the first time it's happened? Do you, do you believe this is good, happy hip households where nothing is wrong and someone says, I'm transgender and bam, now we've flipped a switch to an abusive state? Like, that's probably a family that, that needs, needs help and needs support. So if a kid comes and says, I'm not comfortable at home, to me, that's a huge red flag. You should see if that house needs support, right? Just like it's always been. We all know that teachers for the last 50 years have been told, you know, if, you're t- if you suspect abuse, you report it so they can check. And, and it might be a false, you know, false, report, false alarm. That's okay. We'd rather investigate and go, no, this household's okay, than not investigate and find out that there's a really tragic situation playing out and that we did nothing to support those kids. And, mm-hmm. and that's what's so ridiculous in, the, in this conversation is that it, it equivocates back and forth. It goes from a, this isn't a big deal to this is a super big deal to, you know, like we can't tell parents because they might be abusive. And I don't even know where that's supposed to lead because I've been through a social transition and sure I was 28 when I did it. I wasn't, I wasn't 12, but at the same time I experienced very, very acutely how it felt good to be called Julia and it felt good to be called she, her. And I didn't start with my family and I didn't start with my, my workplace I started with my friends. I had this small group of four or five friends who would call me Julia and call me she, her. And it felt awesome. And all of a sudden, they're the only people I want to be around. And so I'm inviting them over to my house every night. They basically lived at my house for like a month because I had a big house and I didn't want to leave it because I wasn't comfortable going out to the rest of the world where I might be called Jason. I wanted to stay there. And mm-hmm. I go to work and all of a sudden it annoyed me. And my coworkers called me Jason and him, even though they had done that. The, the whole time but now it bothered me because i was getting something different in my affirmation circle mm-hmm. and this is what we're doing to these kids if you have a kid who wants to be called she her and julia and you say well we'll do that for eight hours a day not eight hours a day what is it five hours a day at school and at nights and weekends you're going to be called jason like they're going to resent their parents more they're going to resent their household more you're going to create that Good wedge time. where's it going to go what if, what if they like it what if they say wow i really want this i think i do want to transition well now, at some point, we have to have a, a conversation with that household who apparently might be abusive and say, your child has actually been transitioned for a year and a half at school. Now they would like to go and talk to a doctor about hormones. Like, and I'd be furious as a parent if I found out that you were doing this with my kid. And it's just, I don't, I don't understand it, to be quite honest. Like, I don't even know what they're trying to achieve with it other than just being so fixated on it from this one angle that it's like the only way, only way forward for them. Yeah, well, and the only thing I ever wrote publicly about this before is, um, do you want your children having more trust in a temporary government agent or the parent? Because that's where I was like, and some of these elected officials are parents. So that's what I'm like, is that really what you want? (laughs) You want your kid to be just talking to somebody temporary in their life that's not going to be there to support them later? Or like you said, 
how do we improve the family unit? And this is maybe where we could end on is I think that's where we've kind of lost the conversation. And it's interesting that this is where we're going to is this, what is the smallest structure unit for people is a family. And I think if we, that's where we have to have put in attention, we have to put in time, we have to put in effort, and we've kind of lost that and mm-hmm. this maybe goes to the like female male um, conversation. Women wanted to get empowered and go out and work. And I obviously totally support that. But at the same time, we can't neglect the the most the smallest, most important unit, the family. And like I'm big into yoga and meditation and everything. So we could like, who am I is a question I think about. But I think a lot of people don't take the time to actually figure out who they are and start to become comfortable for themselves, who they are. And so that's why like they're looking for an identity. They're looking for a community because they failed or or we haven't helped elevate them for on the individual unit. And then on the family, it's gotten a little bit distracted is the word word I'll use. So yeah, that's where like any further thoughts here on the just to wrap it up and then we're going to do a few more minutes um for the paid subscribers on uh X. sounds good no i don't i don't think i have a few more thoughts unless there's another another question you want to go into but no i think that's good i, I want i have a few juicy ones that i want to Ooh. ask you on uh the the paid subscription and then i'll release it at some point to, for everyone because they're important topics but sounds good you know. okay well thank you so much <laughs> and um we'll be right back with you